0: I uh, want to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32, Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, verse four that's going to just serve as a uh, launch pad for where we're going today under this idea that God is just. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse four. Uh, should be on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible. And it says this: "The rock, His work is perfect." All his ways are just. A faithful God without bias, he is righteous and true. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you this morning for waking us up, for giving us breath in our lungs, uh, breath to breathe in the air that you've created. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the freedom, the privilege to be able to gather here and sing to you. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that as we sing to you, you uh, saying your word, that you dwell amongst the praises of your people. So we thank you, Lord, for your presence that's here this morning. In this moment, God, I just pray uh, for myself and for everyone in this room. I just pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our minds and our ears so that we may see you clearly, God. We pray, Lord, in this moment that, that you would give us a deeper understanding in who you are. I pray, Lord, that you would empower me with your Holy Spirit to communicate the truth of your word with compassion, with conviction, but also with clarity, God. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word to sanctify your people because your word is truth. So, Father, we just pray uh, that we would be built up so that we can see you clearly, so that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, Father. We thank you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember back in high school, I, I was working at this movie theater. Uh, and in that season of my life, I really loved working at the movie theater because of the amenities. You know, free movies, it was a, a place where you can meet a ton of people, particularly as an 18 year old. Um, and that was just a place where, you know, I made a lot of friends. And I remember after I graduated high school, uh, the team that I was a part of in, while I was working there announced that they were going to be offering promotions. And, um, those promotions, I was like, man, I'm just, you know, I'm a lowly usher. Um, I would like to grow. And they were offering to become team leaders. And it came with a significant pay bump. And I, re- I remember thinking like, man, I've been here for a year. I don't call out. I'm always on time. I work hard. What can go wrong? So, you know, I applied for uh, the promotion. So when I applied for it, I, I only found out that uh, the general manager's son got the promotion only after working there for three months. And if you're like me, you know, the first thing that comes to your mind, is like, that's not fair. Like, I work hard. I've been here longer. Why does this person get the promotion simply because he's related to the boss? And I know there are people in this room who can kind of resonate with that. You, you are qualified. You are capable of doing a particular job, but oftentimes you are overlooked. And it's because you have been overlooked that you begin to seem like, man, life is not fair. And when those things happen, you begin to question God. You ask God, why did you allow this to happen? You know, as a Christian, you begin to ask yourself, how am I supposed to reconcile the reality that life is not fair, but God is? We hear that God is just, but there are things in our life that often pop up that causes us to question God's just nature. There was another time in my life. This was about seven years ago, August 2015. I had just moved to Florida, full of excitement. Um, you know, I'm about to finish my degree, um, was connecting with another pastor there who was excited uh, to mentor me, to disciple me. And he also discipled a few of my cousins. And I was just excited to, to go to Florida. And this summer, this pastor went on vacation with his family after a busy summer as being a youth director, executing a lot of youth activities and a lot of youth camps. And on that week, he leaves with his family to Myrtle Beach uh, to take some time off to make good memories with his wife, his two daughters, and his son. And on that vacation, while they were driving, they were struck by someone who ate a red light, and as a result, he passed away. And I remember receiving a call on August 11th, around 7.30 p.m., that he was in the ER and just to pray. So I remember my cousins, and I. we just began to pray, we began to intercede on his behalf because, you know, this is someone who gave their life for the gospel. This was somebody who, who gave their life to pouring into the next generation, only to receive a call three hours later that he has gone to be with the Lord. And if there's anything in life that causes you to question God's justice is the unexpected, sudden death of a young family member. I remember asking God why my last conversation with him was on a Sunday after he preached and we were just making plans to meet consistently for discipleship and for how he was going to prepare me as a future pastor. I began to ask God, like, God, why would you take someone who was young, full of life, committed to the ministry and committed to equipping the next generation of pastors? And as cliche as it is, I, I simply had to trust God. I had to believe that God is good. I had to believe that God is sovereign, that he is just, and that he is fair. And we've been going through a series called God Is, a study through the attributes of God. And we've uh, quoted A.W. Tozer every week. And it's not because A.W. Tozer is infallible or inerrant, but because he was a godly man who said this true statement. And A.W. Tozer said that What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And as you begin to reflect on this quote, I see the truth and the beauty of it. The truth is because when we see God rightly and clearly, it helps us when tragedy knocks at our front doors. And throughout this sermon series, we've seen that that God is triune, that He's three and one, that He's three distinct persons, but those distinct persons are co-equal and co-eternal. We also saw that God is holy, that He is utterly separate, that He's totally different than creation, that He is morally perfect. We also saw that God is good, that He is the standard of goodness. And last week, we saw that God is wise. So today, we're going to see the reality that God is just. Now, justice is a point of contention in our society. Our culture has lively debates around this area of justice and how this is applied both socially and culturally. And many times when non-believers, non-Christians, talk about justice, they use this as a reason to reject God. They will ask questions like, like, If God is just and fair, why there is so much lack of justice in the world? If life isn't fair and God created life, then how do we know he is fair? How do you know God is just and that you're just not going to get a raw deal from him? How can you believe in the wisdom of God when he allows bad things to happen to good people and good things to happen to bad people? How can you trust God when the world he controls is so obviously unfair? These are questions that people wrestle with, and these are legitimate questions that the Scriptures actually provide an answer to. But before we dive into what the Bible says about what God's Word says about his just nature, it would be helpful to actually define justice. Webster's, Webster's Dictionary defines it as this, the maintenance or administration of what is just especially by the impartial adjustment of conflicting claims or the assignment of merited rewards or punishment, the quality of being just, impartial, or fair, the principle or ideal of just dealing or right action. A theological definition for justice is, justice is the abstract concept of the resulting state of proper judgment. In a legal sense, judgment refers to the process of defending the righteous and condemning the guilty. Together, these concepts uh, form the basis of righteous governance in an emulation of the kingdom of God. But the definition that most resonates with me was a definition I read in uh, seminary by Millard Erickson in his book, Christian Theology. And he says, God's justice means that he administers his law fairly not showing favoritism or partiality. So now that we nailed down a proper framework of defining justice and God's just character, uh, it's vital that we lean in, because author Chip Ingram says this: Though God longs to see us, that God though God longs for us to see Him accurately, our perspective between the first sin and the final judgment is distorted. Until we step out of this life into eternity, we will experience the effects of sin, decay, and death on every side. That's why it's important that we understand how a perfect, just God operates within a system that has been corrupted by rebellion. So, today we're going to see four ways in the Bible that God has revealed himself to be just. Number one, the first way is his role as judge. His role as judge. 2 Timothy 4.8 says this, There is reserved for me, this is Paul writing to Timothy right before he's about to die, he's about to be beheaded, he says, There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. The Bible emphatically declares both Old and New Testaments that the reality that God is a righteous judge. He's not only a judge, but that he is a righteous judge, that he is a judge who will judge fairly. And, and, you know, we live in a culture, you hear people say that only God can judge me. But when they say that, they often want to appeal to God's grace and and to his mercy and to his compassion. But they don't want to, you know, appeal to his just character. And the Israelites, uh, like the other Semitic people of the ancient Near East, regarded whatever deity they worship, they, re- they regarded their god or gods to be the judge of the whole earth. God's universal judgeship was based on the fact that he's the one who created the world, and in that he has established uh, this system of equity and fairness. Therefore, he was regarded as both the source and the guardian of justice because justice and righteousness are core to his nature and to his attributes. Look how the scriptures declare throughout different parts. Psalm ninety-two verse four says this: "Rise up, O Judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve." Psalm ninety-nine four: "The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob." Psalm chapter seven verses seven. Psalm chapter nine verses seven and eight. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people, the peoples, with uprightness. In the Old Testament, the the Hebrew word that is used for uh, justice is the Hebrew word mishpah. And this word often describes how God will decisively intervene for either the, the to, to bless the righteous or to punish the guilty. Because God's justice means that he's going to administer his law fairly, that he's not going to show favorites, that he's always going to be on the side of what is right. Now this begs the question, why don't things go right in the in the world, or in the fact for Old Testament Israel for that matter? This means that God through his law, in his law, that he gave to Israel through Moses, provided clear instructions of what justice, equity, and uh, righteousness should look like among his people. We also have to keep in mind that in biblical times that the king was the supreme judge. And because he was the supreme ruling authority, he's the one who's allowed uh, to pronounce judgment. But the good news is that the God of the Bible, our God through Jesus Christ, he's not a tyrant. He's not a a tyrannical God. He is a God who is righteous and just. He is a God who has all power and all authority. He has absolute sovereignty, but he is a God who never abandons the ethical foundation of his character. Because God's authority is not based off military might, we can trust him because he is a God who's committed to justice. That's why the prophet Isaiah in, chapter, in his book, Isaiah 30, verse 18, says this, to his people, to those who call upon his name, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. He is a God who has revealed himself as judge. But the second way we know that God is just is, number two, our conscience. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 16 says this, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now here, Paul, um, he's communicating to the Jewish Christians in Rome that even people who were not given the law, people outside of Israel, do the things that the law requires shows that God's law has been written on their hearts. The word law here does not refer to the ceremonial aspects of the law, but to the moral imperatives of the law. Laws like obeying your mother and father. Laws like letting your yes be yes and your no be no, not bearing false witness. Laws like being honest in your business dealings, not stealing or taking advantage of the marginalized and punishing those who do evil. Because God in His goodness made humanity in His image. And part of bearing His image is having this conscience. It is the internal moral compass that that reveals both guilt and shame when something that we do wrong. It automatically tells us we're wrong in this. And although the conscience can be seared or even suppressed, we have this innate sense that there are things in the world that are not right, that should be right. This is why we mourn and weep when something horrific happens in society. We don't have to go down all the details. You just turn on the news and we see something and it just causes us within us to just say that shouldn't be that way. And that is the reason why we live in a day in a society that is adamant about justice and equity. And it is this conscience that also God will use when someone rejects the gospel or doesn't have a chance to hear the gospel just to reveal how sinful they were. Just when they stand on that day saying, by your own standards, you didn't even live up to it. You were trying to hold other people to a standard that you failed to live up yourself. So God, he has shown us so far that he has revealed his uh, character through his role as judge, through our conscience, but the third way God reveals his character is through the reality of eternal consequences. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, this is Jesus speaking. uh, This is like the last sermon Jesus is preaching right before he's going to go to the cross, and he's giving a parable that is known about the parable between the sheep and the goats. He says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visited you? Then the king will answer them, truly I say to you as you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not even clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did, not do it, you, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Long text. But in this text, Jesus reveals himself as the son of man. Son of man does not refer to his human state, but actually refers to his divine nature. This divine nature, it was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision. He says, I saw a vision of one like a son of man, one who was eternal, one who sits on the throne, one who is sovereign. And Jesus saying, I'm that son of man. I'm the one who Daniel saw coming in the clouds of heaven with all power and glory. And Jesus here is giving us insight of who he is and how he will judge the nation's. Jesus here is saying he's the one who's going to judge. And when the way that he will judge is going to be like one, like a shepherd who separates the sheep from the goats. This passage reminds us of the eternal reality that one day we will all be judged. That one day we are all going to stand before God in judgment. And Jesus is the righteous judge and king who will separate everyone and place them into the eternal dwelling. Now, I just want to uh, put a parenthesis here because one, on the surface, we can read this text and feel like, man, so only the people who do social justice are the ones who are going to go to heaven. And the people who, you know, close their fists and uh, are, you know, they don't like people, they're going to be the ones to go to hell. But the, the proper answer to that is more like it's that's not it. It's more like the people who actually live out the effects of their their salvation, we don't, we're not saved because of what we do, but because we are saved, we live a different life. We now have compassion towards people. We now want to execute the justice that God wants because he is just. Not because we want to earn it, but because he has saved us. And now these are the effects of what it looks like to be saved. Back to the sermon. Throughout the scriptures, we see a picture of what the final judgment will look like. One clear evidence of this is also found in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses five through nine, where Paul is writing to to the Thessalonians in Thessalonica, where he says this: "This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you." and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, that's what Jesus just talked about, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Throughout the Bible, we see this idea be that because God is just we're going we have this reality of eternal consequences and the concept that God will enact his justice through his wrath is not a popular concept in our culture it is widely ignored it is denied or even just radically reinterpreted in society we have people who will say no 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 because God is loving and you know the, this area, they want to pit love and justice against each other. You know, I don't believe that God will send people to hell. But that's, that's what, the, what Jesus is talking about in the scriptures. He uses imagery of eternal punishment as a reality for people who reject the gospel, for people who want to persist in their sin as the just punishment for their sin. The Bible teaches that one day we will all face God. And that day will either be super terrifying or super glorious, depending on which side of the line you're standing on. But it's because of this that leads me to the fourth and best way that God shows us that he is just, and it's through the gospel. The gospel is the clearest expression of the justice of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 says this. this was to show God's righteousness. Another translation is this was to show God's justice because in his divine forbearance, his divine patience, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So quick thing in the Bible, whenever you see the word righteous or righteousness, it also means just or justice. The words are interchangeable. So Paul here, he's concluding his theological treatise that all people are sinful. Chapter one, he declares that Gentiles are sinful by the way that they live. Chapter two, he declares that Jewish people are sinful because they they were given the law, but yet they don't keep the law. And here, chapter three, he's just saying, hey, at the end of the day, when everybody stands before God, we are all sinners. We all fall short of his law. We all fall short of his glory. But Paul says that God's justice has been revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was sent by God to live the perfect life that no other human being can live and to die the death that every human being was supposed to die. He sacrificed himself on behalf of guilty sinners so that those who trusted in his work may be seen as innocent because someone fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on their behalf. That's why Paul says, in Jesus, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this begs the question, if maybe you've read the Bible a few times, particularly the Old Testament, and you've encountered times in the Old Testament when someone broke the law, someone deserved to die according to the law, but God forgave that person. What comes to mind is David, right? David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 then David, the very man who's called a, a man after God's own heart. 2nd Samuel chapter 11 tells us of a time where David should have been at war, but he stayed home, he's chilling, he's relaxing, having some R&R. And while he's relaxing, he sees a beautiful woman bathing herself. And he sends his subjects to get her for him. David sleeps with her and later she finds out she's pregnant. In fear, he calls for her husband, who's fighting David's battle so that he can come and be celebrated. David, trying to cover his own sin, gets Uriah, that's her husband, drunk with the intention so that he can go sleep with his wife and make it seem like Uriah got Bathsheba pregnant. But as the story goes, you know, he just fell asleep drunk in David's front door. He couldn't go uh, sleep with his wife. So David tries again to get him drunk. And Uriah says, no, I, I, it's a time for war. I can't be sleeping with my wife where all of my brothers and sisters are out at war. So David says, you know what, Uriah, you're a just man. He says, go back to the battlefield. He sends, with his second in command, a letter saying, hey, in battle formation, when you guys go to war, when you guys are lining up in the the line of duty, make sure y'all all step back and let Uriah be there so he can die. He does this, and now Uriah dies, and then after a few months, David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, And then when she's pregnant, no one will pay any mind to this. So he thought. God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David about this. And according to God's law, David has four strikes against him. Some people say three, but four. Let me let me show you. He coveted another man's wife, strike number one. He then took that further and committed adultery with her, strike number two. He then bore false witness. He lied. He tried to cover it up. Strike number three. And lastly, he committed murder. By, setting, by putting Uriah to death. It was his orders. So God held him accountable for that. That's four strikes of death on David. Prophet Nathan comes in, tells him, hey, this happened. What do you think should happen, David? David responds, because of the conscience, that person should die. And, David, and Nathan responds, that man is you. David, by your own admission, you deserve to die. And in that moment, David recognizes his guilt, Says, you know what? You're right. I sinned against God. I sinned against my people. And because of that, Nathan then responds, the Lord says, your sins are forgiven. And it's like, time out. How? This is, is pre Jesus. How is David forgiven for his sin? Well, Paul says that because of God's forbearance, his patience over previous sins, sins that Israel committed, sins that they should have been justly killed for, were placed on Jesus. David, by faith, trusted in a future Messiah. He trusted that one day that God was going to send a Redeemer to redeem Israel. And he, in that trust, in that faith, he was putting his faith in Jesus. And because of that, God declared him to be innocent, to be uh, uh, to be innocent from the law. David bore the consequences of his sin, but he was deemed innocent by God because some in the future, someone else took his sin. God demonstrates his justice that sin needs to be paid for. God does not sweep sin under the rug, and he made a way for sinners to be made right with him through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is just, which is a great hope for all of us when we long for wrongs to be made right not just the wrongs of others, but also ours as well as first. This is an aspect of God's, of God's nature that should bring us comfort. We know that one day God will repay. So as I conclude, I, I just want to share four application points of the way we should respond to the just nature of God. And these four points, I didn't, I didn't get them myself. I got them from a book. It's, called, it's by Chip Ingram, and it's the book called The Real God, how he longs for you to see him. And in that book, he highlights these four things. Number one, choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. In Jesus, we see the perfect picture of God's righteousness, of God's love, and of his mercy. Choose Jesus. Seek after him, run after him, Throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus so that you will not receive the just penalty of your sin, but that you will receive forgiveness and mercy. Number two, don't seek vengeance. I remember I mentioned this a few months back that I, I, I've heard someone at my, at my previous workplace say, like, I know that, you know, God forgives. I don't, you know, I, I get even. And when we read the Bible, it's like, no. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Don't seek vengeance. Do good to those who hurt you and leave it to God for God will bring vengeance. Number three, rest in God's justice. Rest in it because although we may not see uh, justice enacted in this world perfectly, we know that one day God will enact true justice. We know that there are going to be times where the guilty are going to go free and when they should be in jail. There's going to be times where people are going to get a slap on the wrist, and that's going to make you mad. But rest in God's justice because one day, those who do evil will, be, will receive the eternal punishment for their evil. And number th- four, as a result, meditate on the effects of God's final judgment. The reality that one day we're all going to stand before God and that He is going to render to each one what they deserve, That. You should meditate that, and then you should pray for those who commit evil. That they would experience forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That although they're going to receive the consequences of, they may receive the consequences of their sin here on earth, but that they would experience new life in Jesus Christ and then live out a new life. Because God is holy, because he's good, because he's wise, because of all of those things we can ultimately trust God's just nature. We can trust that His justice is holy, it's just, it's wise, and it's good. Let's pray.